If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Sherlock Holmes is arguably the most famous fictional detective of all time. The resident of 221B Baker Street has been the subject of countless films and television portrayals, remaining a figure of fascination around the globe. But what inspired Holmes's creator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, to bring him into the world in the first place? John Borkham recently spoke to the author and biographer Andrew Lysett about the origins of the character and what the stories reveal about Doyle himself. Firstly, Andrew, thanks for joining me on the History Extra podcast today. Delighted to be here. Now, Sherlock Holmes is undoubtedly one of the most famous fictional creations of all time. And and as well as Arthur Conan Doyle's original stories, he's appeared in countless uh, TV programmes, films, uh, even even video games. But to get us started, Andrew, I, I just wondered whether you could begin by telling us exactly when and how Sherlock Holmes was first introduced to the world. Obviously, you can't remove Sherlock Holmes from his creator. That raises a whole kind of uh, area that people like to get into. Was his creator Dr. John Watson, which is what some diehard Sherlockians like to say, or was he Arthur Conan Doyle? Now, for the purposes of this podcast, and generally speaking, as far as I'm always concerned, he is. Um, you know, he was created by Arthur Conan Doyle, and you know there's a story behind that, which I will try to 
sort of elaborate on, which is that Conan Doyle was a highly educated man who trained as a doctor in Edinburgh, uh, where he'd sort of imbued some of the sort of philosophy of um, that place, which was about sort of empirical inquiry, etc., etc. But he'd gone to be a GP in Southsea, uh, on the south coast of England, close to Portsmouth. But he'd always wanted to to write, and he'd begun to write, and he'd sort of tried to write various sort of genre things about the supernatural, etc., etc. Then in 1886, he got married, and he sort of calmed down a little bit, and he decided that he he wanted to, as he put it, to get his name on the back of a volume, back of a book. So he then, he wrote his first shortish Sherlock Holmes story, A Study in Scarlet, which was not immediately taken up, but eventually it was published in Beaton's uh, Christmas Annual. uh, And it, you know, it made a few waves. uh, And Conan Doyle was then still a a GP, but he was trying to sort of develop his career as, as a writer. He went up to London, sort of met a few writers. He was invited by an an American publisher to a famous dinner at the uh, Langham Hotel, where the American publisher called Lipcott. And the other person there, well, one of the other people there was uh, Oscar Wilde. These two writers were asked to go away and write stories for the magazine. Oscar Wilde went away and wrote uh, his um, study of... um, Dorian Gray, whereas Conan Doyle went and wrote the second of the Sherlock Holmes stories, which was The Sign of Four. That was duly published in the magazine and sort of created a a bit more of a noise about uh, Conan Doyle. He decided that he was going to move from the South Coast and move up to London, but initially he was still going to continue as a doctor continue the sort of dual career as a doctor and try and develop his his career as a writer. The, by good chance, well, he, he, he got himself an agent for a start, and then by good chance there was a, a new magazine which just appeared called Strand Magazine, which was sort of catering for the sort of newly educated middle class, let's put it, like that, people who were sort of commuting and stuff, and you know, wanted a, a shortish read to read in the train, take back home to read with a family. And this magazine, Strand Magazine, decided that Charlotte Holmes offered a, a sort of good story to develop over the um, a number of issues. Now, it wasn't going to be a serial like had been the norm in sort of magazines. It wasn't going to be like Dickens and sort of you had to have a cliffhanger or that kind of thing. This was going to be a series of separate um, stories, which obviously, you know, introduce Sherlock Holmes and his um, sidekick, Dr. Watson. And, you know, it was the adventures of Sherlock Holmes as told in these what became monthly uh, stories in Strand magazine as told by Dr. John Watson. Fantastic. That's an excellent summary there. When did Arthur Conan Doyle then think, hey, I can make this into a full-time career? Very quickly. You know, he started writing these stories in at the beginning of 1891. 
And by the middle of 18 of that year, he decided, I mean, they, they were already creating waves, if you want to put it that way. And uh, he was able to say, you know, knock his medical career on, on its head and uh, say, I'm going to devote myself uh, full time to writing. Now, at the same time, he wasn't totally committed to, to Sherlock Holmes. He was writing other things. He, he wanted to write you know, he he really saw himself as a sort of writer of historical novels, and uh, he just published um, a novel about the Hundred Years' War called the, the White Company, and so you know he was doing this parallel. But obviously, the success of Sherlock Holmes, well, it encouraged him to stop working as a doctor and to devote himself full time to to writing. By then, he had two children. And he decided pretty quickly that he was going to move from where he was uh, initially in London, which was sort of Wimpole Street area, sort of close to um, Doctors and Harley Street, etc., etc. And he moved down to his first sort of proper home, which was in South Norwood, suburb of um, in South London, if you like. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Fascinating. And to what extent was the character of Sherlock Holmes modelled on Doyle's old mentor from back in Edinburgh, Dr Joseph Bell? The One of the things that uh, Conan Doyle l- learned at Edinburgh was, you know, there was a sort of strong tradition of empirical inquiry at the university, at the sort of centre of David Hume and et cetera, et cetera. And there was a, a number of um, famous medics who'd been through the Edinburgh um, medical school and taught there. But um, Conan Doyle, who was studying medicine, he had a number of 
teachers who sort of were very influential. But perhaps the most important was this character called Dr. Joseph Bell, who was a professor of surgery. He somehow saw something in Conan Doyle, it seems, because he chose him to sort of work with him in the uh, Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. And Conan Doyle used to go round with Dr. Joseph Bell and sort of imbibe the business of uh, examining patients. And Bell had a very specific technique. I mean, he, he was very observant. He could look at somebody coming in from, I don't know, from the Highlands. And, you know, he could say exactly what that person had been doing that day by looking at his shoes and sort of say that he walked here by, and he, you know, say that because of the the kind of boots that he had that he had probably worked in the in the military or something like that uh and conan doyle took this on board um it was really about the the kind of importance of observing closely and as he later said to watson you know you have something like you have looked but you haven't observed you have to take everything in and this was this was the important thing as far as first of all joseph bell dr joseph bell at edinburgh university and then later conan doyle and later obviously sherlock holmes put across indeed and now andrew this book of yours is called the worlds of sherlock holmes and and if we want to talk about setting then of course we have to talk about 221b baker street probably the most famous fictional address of all time what would the the real baker street have looks like around the time that Doyle was writing these stories? Well, it was, okay, there, there was there was Baker Street, which sort of basically grew out of Oxford Street and sort of the West End. And then it sort of went across the, the Marylebone Road. I think it was then still called the New Road. And it sort of became Upper Baker Street and went up to the suburbs, to St John's Wood and then further afield. So it was sort of an interesting sort of gentrified arterial road that really took traffic um, northwards from uh, the West End. But it was also interesting in that it was close to the railway lines that were coming into London at the time. So, you know, it was particularly close to Marylebone Station and also not too far from other stations, sort of which straddle now the Marylebone and Euston Road, so Euston and King's Cross. But also that axis, if you like to call it that, um, was where the Underground Railway had recently been introduced. So Baker Street found itself on the, the new Underground Railway Metropolitan Line, which was quickly extended out into the suburbs. And, you know, you have instances in the stories of people coming to see Charlotte Holmes and, and using the um, the Underground Railway to do so. And looking beyond Baker Street to London and, and Britain itself, the country was undergoing quite a radical transformation at the time, not just in terms of things like transport and technology, but there was also a sense that its place in the world was changing. Do we get a glimpse of that in Arthur Conan Doyle's writing? We certainly get a glimpse of it. And it's it's quite interesting to sort of tease out exactly how it occurs and where. You know, you can't get away from the fact that it was a time 
of great change. And actually, in the real world, even in 1895, you know, things were changing, that the, the British Empire was at its zenith, but it was also beginning to feel that it didn't quite have the, the primacy. And there was, you know, it was very much the, the period of imperial rivalry and, and uh, Germany in particular beginning to encroach on, on British uh, supremacy, if you like. And this was carried on into the Boer War. Now, here you begin to get that sort of parallel lives of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle, because Conan Doyle had his own particular take on all this. You know, he he was born in, in Edinburgh and of Irish extraction. Both his families were Irish, but he came down to to live in in England and sort of adopted the English um, way of life. And but his experience, actually, I mean, as a young boy, he'd been to Ireland and he'd been disturbed by. Fenian violence, and that was a thing of the 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 late nineteenth century in 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 London that you got sort of um, incidents, bombings, etc. Blamed on the Fenians. So Conan Doyle became very much sort of conservative in his political views. He was uh, a liberal unionist, and liberal unionist actually meant conservative. It was a conservative with liberal tendencies who who kind of um, believed in the the union of, of Ireland. Now, Ireland plays quite a significant role in the Sherlock Holmes stories. You have people who might be described as Fenians introduced into the, the stories, creating a sense of, of violence, etc. So Conan Doyle was, for stability, if you like to put it that way, he became an imperialist. Then he became a great proponent of empire, which plays its part in the Sherlock Holmes stories. It's not a theme that is pushed, but nevertheless, it is there. Perhaps the theme that is particularly stressed in the stories uh, is that Conan Doyle, particularly, and through his his, um, character Sherlock Holmes, is a great advocate of sort of closeness between Britain and the United States. And now, Andrew, you have alluded to it earlier on, but the Victorian era was an age of scientific empiricism. And as I think you point out in the book, Doyle himself was born in the same year that um, Darwin published On the Origin of Species. Is the character of Sherlock Holmes then a, a conscious reflection of that kind of thinking? Sherlock Holmes is definitely... A reflection of that, what's going on in in the world. To what extent was he actually a conscious reflection of it? I think he was because Conan Doyle was sort of trying to say something interesting about the world around him. But it was really a reflection of Conan Doyle's own upbringing. And I've tried to explain a bit about that, you know, the background that he'd had. So, you know, he had been brought up to observe closely in his training as a doctor, and he introduced that into, into Sherlock Holmes. Conan Doyle was very much a man of his times. He was a bit of an adventurer. You know, he liked to travel. He'd worked as a doctor on a, a whaling ship in the Arctic. He'd travelled as a, again as a doctor on a, a, a trading ship that went down the uh, West African coast. And, you know, he'd sort of 
been introduced to, to various countries along that the route when it when it sort of docked, and you know he liked to uh, to travel widely. So you know the the sense of the world was there in the Sherlock Holmes stories. How, and how does that tally with the author's own personal beliefs? Because if if think if there's one thing that people know about Arthur Conan Doyle aside from Sherlock Holmes, it's often that he became very fascinated with spiritualism later in life. Uh, how, how do you reconcile that rational thinking and this belief in, um, you know, this obsession with ghosts and th- th- things that can't be proved by science? Good question. And, you know, I'm glad that you've, you've asked that because, you know, that is crucial to, to both, well, particularly to Conan Doyle, I guess, and so, sort of to Sherlock Holmes. Basically, Conan Doyle decided that Sherlock Holmes would be the representation of his view of the scientific world. And, you know, he didn't introduce any sense of the supernatural really into the the Sherlock Holmes stories. I mean, there was no kind of supernatural things that Sherlock Holmes adopted to solve his cases. And if in a late story, he, talk, he talks about, you know, no ghosts need apply to you know vacancy you know in the, any any kind of element of his of his thinking or um endeavors now conan doyle he personally and he was he was greatly believed in the scientific uh, method but he retained a sort of sense that there was something a bit more in the world than could be just explained by science. Consequently, you know, in sort of almost in parenthesis, you know, he was not a supporter, he was not an advocate of the sort of mechanistic view of the mind, which was beginning to come to the surface through the the, the works of um, Sigmund Freud and etc. Conan Doyle had a much more sort of spiritual idea of how the mind worked and uh, it was partly to do with, you know, the fact that he was brought up in not exactly a religious environment, but I guess you could call it that. I mean, he was basically a Catholic and he could never, you know, although he, he at university, he began to call himself an agnostic. He could never quite throw off the sort of influence of his um, upbringing. So he had a curious sort of relationship between science and religion, which he explores in various non-Sherlockian um, works, you know, that there's sort of more autobiographical works that he, one or two that he, he came up he came up with. And so there is that tension. And actually, my feeling is that this tension between the sort of scientific science of Conan Doyle, which he gives to his scientifically trained or scientifically orientated consulting detective. There's a tension between that and Conan Doyle's own sense that there is something else. And that actually makes for an interesting dimension to the Sherlock Holmes stories, which, you know, if you take it a bit further, perhaps explains to a certain extent, you know, why they've endured. Exactly. And you, you mentioned his uh, non-Sherlockian works there. W- was Arthur Conan Doyle ever frustrated that Holmes perhaps overshadowed his other writings? So Professor Challenger, for instance. Yes, 
Conan Doyle was definitely frustrated by, you know, the sense that he he wanted to do something else. He wanted to do something a bit more, you know, he was he he um admired the historical novels of Walter Scott and Robert Louis Stevenson. He wanted to emulate them. That was where he saw his his forte. Well, not necessarily, it wasn't really his forte, but it was where he really wanted to be remembered as a historical novelist. And, you know, he wrote about, for example, the Napoleonic Wars in the Brigadier Gerard stories. So, you know, Sherlock Holmes was a kind of interruption. It was a welcome interruption. He wanted to, you know, make money. He he liked that. He, he enjoyed having money and became obviously very rich and et cetera, et cetera. But obviously, you know, as is well known, he tried to kill off Sherlock Holmes um, after something like 24 stories. And he wanted to concentrate on other things. He was sort of dragged back into writing Sherlock Holmes, partly because of, you know, financial necessities, because I say he was quite rich, but, you know, he was just given, made an offer that he couldn't refuse. You know, an American publisher wanted him to come back and write new story, new Sherlock Holmes stories in the, the early 20th century. And uh, he he gave it another go. And now, Andrew, let's talk about Sherlock Holmes' journey from the printed page into other forms of media. F- firstly, when did he make his way into the theatre? Well, pretty early on. For some reason, although film was around, and Conan Doyle being a sort of in you know advocate advocate of um, modern things he liked gadgets and stuff and he you know he was very into photography he, that was one of his early hobbies somehow or other Sherlock Holmes was kind of bypassed by certainly British and American filmmakers initially but he was taken up by an American actor producer called William Gillette in around the the sort of in, end of the sort of about 1900 and you know the Gillette took Sherlock Holmes onto the stage in both New York and then later in London and made him a great success and he introduced some of the the sort of accoutrements that you now find associated with Sherlock Holmes which are not not necessarily in the original stories. So the Merchant-bound pipe and, you know, hooked pipe, etc. The hat that he wore. So these, these sort of, you know, the visual side of, of Sherlock Holmes began to develop through this very popular play that, as I say, ran in, Lon- in New York and in London, starring this chap, uh, William Gillette. So it was late, you know, only subsequently that that Sherlock Holmes was taken up by filmmakers, but they sort of adopted what had by then become a kind of visual cliche for the character. Sure. And there there was quite a convoluted process in getting Sherlock Holmes onto the big screen, wasn't there? Can you just talk us through that? Yeah. I mean, as I said, you know, it took a little while for Sherlock Holmes to reach the the big screen, if you like. Uh, Strangely, some of his first um, representations on the screen were in Denmark and in Germany, where they seemed to, you know, sort of there was a strong tradition of the the, the silent screen. Then um, there was a sort of ersatz Sherlock Holmes character that was introduced in France, and, and Conan Doyle got a bit fed up with that, and he tried to stop it 
he hadn't really taken much interest in film. And after that, he was he was more open to film representations of Sherlock Holmes. You began to get them during the First World War. And then he was taken up by an important British company, the Stoll Film Company, that sort of reproduced a number of Sherlock Holmes films. And then, you know, then you got Hollywood taking him up and, you know, you got um, eventually the the sort of famous representations of, of Sherlock Holmes uh, starring um, Basil Rathbone and people like that. So it was a ongoing process, if you like, and there was various sort of developments in it. You know, it's, at certain stages, the there's always the, the sort of Conan Doyle estate, which passed into his son's hands after Conan Doyle himself died in 1930, so quite sort of early on in, if you like, in the film's history. And then at various stages, um, the estate was cooperating with certain filmmakers, etc. And then, you know, not. And, you know. So a history developed of Sherlock Holmes on the screen. Yes. And as you, you mentioned there, I think when most of us think of the original Sherlock Holmes, we think of, yeah, Basil Rathbone and Hound of the Baskervilles, for instance. I mean, but but what adaptations do you feel most accurately capture the, the the essence of the original Holmes? Funny enough, I I can't really think of anything that really captures the essence of Sherlock Holmes. And you know, I feel I honestly feel that that is something that is still to be done. I mean, the the latest manifestation of Sherlock Holmes, as far as people are concerned, is um, the Bennett. Benedict Cumberbatch uh, television series but it you know it's although it interestingly kind of references a lot of the the stories it's so keen on being sort of clever and tricksy that it, it misses the steady pace of the original Sherlock Holmes stories it's difficult really I mean a lot of films you will discover are sort of amalgamations of, say, three stories and, you know, a, a filmmaker's put together three stories because, you know, you can't just necessarily film something that is written in 6,000 6, words or something like that. You know, you need more of a body of work. So, you know, the, perhaps the greatest films are, you know, the greatest film, Sherlock Holmes film, and the one that has been actually people go back to more than ever is the Hound of the Baskervilles, which which you mentioned. So, you know, that gives you something to kind of get your teeth into, if you like. You know, it, it has um, different sort of elements, you know, starts off in London and you've got the countryside. You've got you've got that tension between science and the supernatural, which doesn't it's not manifest in all the, the stories by any means. Um, and, you know, you've got a, a very strong framework of a story, even though it doesn't, certainly in the, um, the, the written story, it doesn't actually involve Sherlock Holmes himself until sort of at least halfway through the, the story. And finally, Andrew, the big question, uh, why do you think the world is still so captivated by Sherlock Holmes? I think the world is captivated by Sherlock Holmes because he is a strong character, but nevertheless delightfully ambivalent in some ways. You know, what kind of a man was Sherlock Holmes? You know, he was this great rationalist, but, you know, he had, he sort of went home and sort of was 
back to Baker Street and um, he played his violin. <laughs> so he wasn't he wasn't a, a total uh, stoic or whatever. Um, you know, but more than that, you know, he liked to relax by ingesting a, a solution of, of cocaine. And, you know, in a way that makes him very contemporary. But to go back to your, your question about, you know, why is Sherlock Holmes so popular, if you like, it is the tension between these various aspects of him. You know, he's he's difficult to to pin down exactly. He's a pleasant character. He's he's not a difficult character. You know, people like him. They like they like that relationship between him and Dr. Watson, you know, which, you know, has if you like, sort of different sides of a relationship, if you like, of different characters. And it's been taken up by other detective writers, if you like. It comes in the Morse stories or whatever. Sherlock Holmes, he's also, he's very adaptable. I mean, this is something that I I, I learned from uh, reading something that um, the writer... John le Carre said about him because he introduced a, a volume of um, Conan Doyle stories and he'd said that you know one of the features of the Sherlock Holmes stories is that they the mixture of dialogue and description is very important to the the development of the stories and you know that is very true but he also le Carre made the point that that makes them very easy to adapt to other languages. And one of the f features of Sherlock Holmes, um, Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, is that he has been widely translated. He is popular in other cultures. He's very popular in Japan, for example, and there's Japanese, Japanese films, Japanese television series featuring Sherlock Holmes, you know, just as much as there is in Hollywood. That was Andrew Lysett. His new book, The Worlds of Sherlock Holmes, The Inspiration Behind the World's Greatest Detective, is out now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley. 